Father, I want to thank you again uh, for loving us, for sending Jesus to die for us, for giving us the free gift of salvation. I want to thank you for making us a church, making us uh, part of the body of Christ. Thank you for blessing us. Thank you for uh, equipping us. Thank you for uh, this beautiful day that we have to another opportunity to, to hear from your word. And uh, Lord, I just ask, I mean, this, this passage, I personally am humbled by it because it contains some rich, rich truth. And I want to be able to present it uh, correctly, but also in, in a way that is uh, easy to understand and apply. Lord, as Proverbs says, that wise tongue makes knowledge acceptable. And so that's what I ask that your Holy Spirit would help me and help us to open up our ears to hear your word and our hearts to receive your truth so that we would be more and more uh, the church that you want us to be. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians. It's not really technically a book. It's a letter, ancient letter written by the Apostle Paul around 60-61 AD to a church in the city of Ephesus. Our focus this morning is going to be on verses 7 through 16, but before we actually get to the the, the passage, um, I'd like to go ahead and answer uh, two questions that were asked the pastor many years ago uh, from a, a guest after a service. These two questions were asked. The first question was, where is Jesus? And the second question is, what is Jesus doing? So we go ahead and just answer those questions uh, together. So the first question, where is Jesus? Well, technically speaking, Jesus is God. You can't contain God in any place. But if we're going to be specific, uh, let's see if this works. Yay, it does. So Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, and this is Paul's referring to God's power here, which he worked in Christ by raising him, raising Christ from the dead, and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So where is Jesus? He is risen. He is exalted. He is ruling. Uh, he is at the right hand of the Father, which is really cool, especially the language that he uses there, uh, far above all rule and authority and power dominions not just physical but also spiritual jesus is exalted high above but it gets even more cooler is that a word cooler than that john 14 here jesus is talking to his disciples and before he gets uh before he he dies and he's promising that he's going to send once he leaves he's saying it's better for me to go because if i don't go i can't send the holy spirit so he's talking about the holy spirit that's going to be coming uh, to them. John 14, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will, will no longer see me, but you will see me. Again, future with the resurrection and, and after all that. Because I live, you will live also. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So we go to the question again, where is Jesus? Well, he's risen, he's exalted, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, 
At the same time, we are in him and he is in us if we're followers of Jesus. I was like, whoa, that's really cool. So then the second question, what is Jesus doing? Uh, In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has taken his disciples to a place of Caesarea Philippi. He asks them the question, who do people say I am? Peter responds, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is like, you know, kudos to you. That was given to you by my father. But Jesus says, I will build my church. Use the word ecclesia, the called out assembly. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. In the book of Acts, this book uh, is, was written by a man by the name of Luke. Luke was most likely commissioned by a guy named Theophilus to write an orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And so he does that in his first account, which is, bears his name, the Gospel of Luke. And Acts is kind of the continuation. And he begins this way in Acts 1.1. The first account, referring to Luke, O Theophilus, I composed about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Well, it's weird because then Jesus ascends. So then what happens? Well, you get to chapter two, the Holy Spirit comes and fills uh, the, the church and there you go. The ministry continues. So what is Jesus doing? As Jesus, uh, Jesus is, is building his, his church, he is expanding his kingdom and his rule, and he's doing so through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what is Jesus doing? That's what he's doing. He's building his church. He's expanding his kingdom and his rule through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this leads us to our passage this morning where Paul is transitioning from instruction to now practical application of that instruction. And as we've been observing throughout this letter, Paul focuses on three things. The first thing that Paul focuses in on is the believer's identity in Christ. Who you are in Christ. Your identity is really important. When you know who you are, you know what to do. Uh, Your behavior, uh, your activity flows out of your identity. We, who are followers of Jesus, are in Christ. The second thing that uh, Paul brings up is that Jesus is the exalted Lord and conquering King. And we're going to see that in our passage this morning. The third is that the church is not a building. The church is its people. People united in Christ, the people who are his body, Christ's body, Christ's bride. And so our focus of today, the focus of today's passage is going to be on the church, specifically three marks of a healthy church. Three marks of a healthy church. Now, even though we're going to be mainly focusing in on verses 7 through 16, this really includes verses 1 all the way through uh, verse 16. And so we've already covered verses 1 through 6 last week, and so we're going to just kind of skim through that. But um, here we go with the outline. So three marks of a healthy church. The first mark is that healthy churches walk worthy in unity. And I'm just going to go ahead and reread Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner... In the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The first thing we recognize here in this, these two, uh, six verses, verses one through six, uh, the first thing is the standard of a worthy walk. What is the standard? Well, according to the calling to which you have been called. We have been called in Christ. We have been chosen as a church to be holy and blameless before him. That's not just something that's going to wait wait until the future. That's a current reality right now, all the way into eternity. In chapter 2, Paul talks about that we who are in Christ have been created for good works. When Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, the word worthy is walk in a way that's fitting to who you are in Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, become who you already are. Now the qualities, the second thing, the qualities of this worthy walk are humility, gentleness, and patience. Humility fuels unity. I mean, if you're thinking of yourself, if you're being prideful, that destroys unity. But humility brings that together. And the best, most amazing, perfect example of humility is Jesus, the exalted eternal son coming into this world, living and dying, taking on the form of a servant, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Second, gentleness. Gentleness is sometimes translated as meekness, and it doesn't mean like a weakness. It doesn't mean being a, a, a doormat that people walk all over you. It's, it's, it's really uh, the idea of Control, self-control. Of uh, you, you have the ability to lash out on someone, to exert your strength, but you control it. You're gentle. You know, we 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 tell our little kids when they're touching something precious, we say, you know, gentle, 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 because we know if we don't say that, what's going to happen? You're going to lose a family heirloom, right? You're just going, oh no, kids are going to yay. Gentleness, gentleness also helps with unity. Patience course i don't need to talk about this because we're perfect at patience right we're amazing we don't need to there's a, actually a joke uh that says you know it's it's in the form of a prayer lord give me pray lord give me patience and hurry <laughs> you know it's just like yeah you you have to have patience if, if you treat people the way we normally treat people on the road especially within the body that doesn't cause unity Everybody's at a different pace, especially in their walk with Christ. Some people are advancing really far. Some people are, are just getting started. Others are just kind of trotting along. Instead of getting impatient with them and just, ah, what are you doing? Get out of the way. You know, we being patient, patient. So the qualities of a worthy walker, humility, gentleness, patience. Again, we went through this last week. Three, the means of a worthy walk are showing tolerance, are literally bearing with one another in love, putting up with sometimes our foolishness, putting up with sometimes our idiosyncrasies, our, our differences, because we're all different, rather than being annoyed with each other, bearing one another, showing tolerance with one another in love, and doing our best to protect, guard the unity that we already have. We, as a church, don't have to create, manufacture this unity. We already have this unity, so we just protect it. And finally, Paul brings up the basis for this unity is found in God. That God is this am amazing, amazing, complex being. 
that we can't ever really fully comprehend. I mean, uh, God eternally exists as three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, yet there's only one God. It's not as if God just wears hats. You know, like, oh, today I'm going to be God the Father, tomorrow God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. No, three distinct persons. In fact, in, in Jesus' baptism, all three members of that Godhead, which we theologians will call the Trinity, are interacting with one another, yet there's only one God. Well, how does that work? I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to scratch my head. I can't wait to see how that looks, how that works. But it, it is within the Godhead, there's this unity. And, and, and God is to be a model. God's unity within himself is our model, our example. The reason why we can be united. And as the church is, is united together, we reflect who God is. So that's the first mark of a healthy church. The first mark, healthy churches walk worthy in unity. The second mark of a healthy church is healthy churches are equipped. And we're going to see this in verses 7 through 12. The first thing we're going to pick up is Christ is the victorious king who gives. Let me see. Am I right there? Yes. Christ is the victorious king who gives gifts. Uh when we, this is in verses 7 through 10. So let's go to that passage. Thank you, Mark, for, for advancing on that. <laughs> I've got a lot of slides on here, so thank you. Uh, starting at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given. Now, prior to this, Paul has been talking to us as the church in cor- corporately. Here he kind of changes uh, tone grammar, and he's, he's, he's talking to us individually. He's even including himself. To each one of us, grace was given. Now the question is, what what does Paul mean by grace was given? Uh, Paul uses this language earlier in his letter in regards to his ministry uh, to the Gentiles. Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles... If indeed you heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. A couple of verses down, uh, verse, starting at verse 7. Of which I, Paul, was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the good news of the unfathomable riches of Christ. Basically, Paul was empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what he was called to do. Paul was empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what he was called to do. In the same way, we as followers of Christ have all been given grace and have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to live our lives, to be the church, to do what we were called to do. So be each one was given a gra- uh, of us was given grace, Paul says, according to the measure, the word there measure is the Greek word metron, it just literally means the full extent of a specific portion of the whole, according to the measure of Christ's gift, meaning we are not all, we are not all called or empowered to do the exact same thing. 
In other words, within this unity of the church, there is also diversity. But this diversity doesn't destroy that unity. In fact, it enhances it. It builds it. It makes it even stronger. Paul then uh, um, gives support of this idea of us receiving gifts in in verse 8. Look what it says. uh, Therefore, it says... When he ascended on high, when he traveled up on high to an exalted position, he led captives. Literally, he took prisoner, a host of captives, a band of prisoners, and he gave gifts to men. Now, Paul kind of quotes Psalms 68, verse 18. And I say kind of, because if you did a little bit of study and you read Psalm 68, verse 18, the wording is a bit different. And so what we see here is, is, is like Paul's adapting this, uh, this verse. The, the context of Psalm 68, uh, particularly for verse 18, begins in uh, verse 15 of that same chapter. Um, and it describes God as defeating evil at Mount Bashan, which was a, a many-peaked mountain, was a kind of a notorious mountain in ancient history uh, the Canaanites uh, believed it was the gateway to the underworld and, and uh, under Jewish uh, folklore, it was a place where evil resides. So it was an evil mountain. And in the Psalm, God's like, I'm taking that mountain. That's my mountain. So this Psalm shows God receiving gifts of plunder or tribute from a defeated foe. So who has Christ defeated? Well, he's defeated Satan, sin, and death and all the spiritual rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Look at uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Here Paul says, uh, Having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he, Christ, made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in him. Jesus defeated the foes. Satan, sin, and death, and all the spiritual rulers and authorities. He is victorious. And so what Paul does is he basically adapts the wording of this verse in Psalm 68. And the, the, the wording uh, is very similar to the Aramaic and uh, Sirach uh, translation of this uh, verse. But it describes God giving gifts, sharing in the spoils of his triumph uh, with his people. And then Paul basically points this passage to Christ. Look at uh, verse uh, 9. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts or lower regions of the earth? Now that phrase lower parts or lower regions in the first century was a phrase understood, especially by the, 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 the audience, the people reading this letter. It was understood as referring to the underworld or, or Hades. Uh, in Ephesus uh, and also the surrounding region, which is Asia, which is now modern day Turkey, uh, they worship many gods and goddesses of the underworld. And the most, uh, the most famous out of all uh, those gods and goddesses was uh, Hecate. And here's a picture of Hecate right there. Just, oh, such a, lo- looks like a lovely lady that you want to, Invite to your Sunday brunch. But this uh, goddess was the goddess of witchcraft, sorcery, 
ghosts, evil spirits, demons, and necromancy. Hmm. <laughs> not coming to my dinner, right? Not, not good. Yeah, no lunch for you. No soup for you. Um, those who got that joke. Okay. <laughs> this goddess was revered um, as, uh, uh, you know, again, the, the, the ruler, the, the, the overlord of the, of the underworld and uh, was said to possess the keys of Hades. Priestesses who would serve in her temple were called key bearers. Hecate had ruling power over Hades. And if you died and went into the underworld, there was no way you were coming out. And this is something the Ephesians would have greatly understood. Now, there have been some scholars and some even songs that say that Jesus went into hell. There is no verse that says that. The idea is that Jesus died. Jesus really died, okay? I mean, he didn't just pass out. He wasn't just weak. He didn't pretend his death. No, he literally died and was buried. And the idea was, well, once you're dead, there ain't no coming back from that, especially if you're first century in Ephesus, you know, not, not a follower of Christ yourself. Hecate, is, she's the, the ruler of the underworld. She's not going to let anyone. She's way too powerful to let anyone come past her and come back to life. But what did Jesus do? Look at verse 10. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens. And the heavenly place is literally, that's the place where the spiritual beings would reside so that he might fill all. What did Jesus do? Defeated death. He rose again. Well, you can't do that. You can't do that. No, no, no. Hecate would not let anyone come out. This Jesus is way more stronger than death, more powerful than death. What's fascinating is when you get to the book of Revelation, which was a, another uh, document that was addressed to various churches around the same region in Asia. Look what Jesus says about himself. Chapter one, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Mic drop right there. Booyah! Jesus is the conquering king, the victorious king who can give gifts. Now he moves on to the second uh, point here. Christ is a victorious king who gives gifts. Now it's number two. These gifts are leaders in the church. Let's go to verse 11. And he gave. There's an emphasis in the Greek. He himself gave. So making sure this is God is personally involved in this. And he himself gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Now the word apostle is, is, is a, it just means a sent one. Someone who has been commissioned to deliver a message to go do something with authority. And that's who the apostles were. They were, taught, they were commissioned by Jesus himself, taught by Jesus to go 
preach Jesus and plant churches and train up leaders and, and get this whole thing called the church kind of uh, organized and, and put together. The word prophet just means someone who hears from God and reveals what they hear from God to others. Now, the, the, the role of apostle and prophets were extremely important in the first century church because while they had the Old Testament, they didn't have the New. That was still being written. You know, they, 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 they understood, okay, all these Old Testament promises Jesus fulfilled, but the implications of that and, and, and this whole thing called the church, that's kind of was a new concept. And how was that supposed to happen? How was the leadership to be chosen and, and all that kind of stuff? They didn't know. So what did God give the church? Well, God sent apostles to teach them. He gave them prophets to, to give them God's word as God's word was being written. It's really important. Look at uh, Ephesians uh, 2, 19. Paul's ta- saying, So then you, Gentiles, are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And are of God's household, having been, been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Apostles and prophets were extremely important, extremely significant uh, leaders in the, the, the first century church. Now, I know nowadays you'll hear a lot of people saying that there are still modern day prophets and modern day apostles. But again, you have to kind of figure out what do you mean by that because a lot of times it's not really specifically attached to what the bible says an apostle or prophet is so you got to be really really careful of that especially if someone comes and says i have a new word from god Ooh, you know was it uh, sp- uh lost in space danger will robinson you hear that danger will robinson danger Oh, I have a new word from, from the Lord. It's like, no, Peter says that we have been given everything we need to live a life of righteousness, of godliness, in God's precious promises. We have everything. Someone says, oh, I have a new word. Pfft, nope, this trumps your word. In fact, I'm going to investigate your word to this. The next uh, uh, role he, he brings up is evangelist. Word just simply means a messenger of good news. This word was actually applied uh, to for um, messengers of Rome who would travel around to different villages proclaiming the good news of a Roman victory. They were called evangelists. They proclaimed good news. Well, Christians kind of took this language and said, no, we proclaim the true good news, the true good news of Jesus Christ. Now, how specifically did evangelists function uh, in, in the early church? I have no idea. The Bible isn't really clear as to what specifically they did. Now, you do have a number of books about certain things, like, oh, this is what happened, and this is what specifically they did. They're making an argument based off of silence. They're coming to a conclusion based off of silence. So you want to be very, very careful with that. We really don't know other than these individuals proclaimed good news. How? I have no idea. Second, he brings up pastors and teachers. Now, grammatically... Um, this could be referring to the same role. But it can also be referring to two groups with, that share similarities. Now, pastor just means shepherd. This is the only time in the New Testament where shepherd is used to describe a role or a function in the church. 
Um, elders are described elsewhere in Acts and in First Peter uh, as uh, to, to, they're commanded to shepherd the flock. One of the qualifications for an elder is the ability to teach. And so pastors shepherd and also teach. But also in the Bible, you see teachers kind of separated from elders, and, and it's like their own little thing. And so, yes, pastors are teachers or shepherds who teach, but not all teachers are pastors, if that makes sense. Unless you're going, whatever. Either way, what Paul's getting at, these are leaders of the church. Now, the thing is, these leaders are not just gifted individuals, but they themselves are the gift given to the church. Yeah. Whoa. Think about that. They are the gift that God gives to the church, which makes sense why Paul would say in uh, 1 Timothy 5, the elders who lead well are to be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor at preaching the word and teaching. In uh, Hebrews, we don't know, some people say it was Paul, could have been Paul, could have been another guy named Apollos who wrote Hebrews, we don't know. But in chapter 13, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Now, does this mean that you are to Obey every single thing that the church leaders tell you to do? No, because every delegated authority has limitations. So the government has been delegated authority to do what it's supposed to do. But once it steps out of that, the boundary set in scripture, if you want to read that Romans 13, then they're no longer functioning the way God intended them to function. The same thing in, in our house. Men are called to, to lead their homes, to disciple their kids. In our homes, I have no jurisdiction to go into your homes and tell you what to do, and I want you to follow what I tell you to do. That's going above and beyond what God has set. Similarly, pastors and leaders in a church are, are, are commissioned to do so, you know, lead and, 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 and fulfill their role to a point, but they cannot go above and beyond that. So you have some leaders out there, unfortunately, who abuse this power and say, well, you need to submit. That's what Hebrews says, submit to everything I say. Well, not, not, not really. Again, are they, are they, are they encouraging you to, to follow God's word? Then, hey, great. Yeah, by all means, follow that. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what pastors and leaders are called to do. But especially if they tell you to sin or uh, false teaching, then yeah, you don't, you don't follow that. And, and there are many so-called churches with so-called gifted leaders in there, but I wouldn't really consider them a gift that God has given that church because they're not teaching the ways of Christ. They'll serve their teaching, but it's not good teaching. It's, it's wrong. Here, Paul's focusing on an, a healthy church, a healthy church that is united in Christ, a, a, a church that is not perfect, but is being faithful. And to those faithful churches, God gives gifts. And one of those gifts are the leadership. Now, where some congregations fall is when they view their leaders not just a gift, not as just a gift, but as idols. They view them not just as a, as a, as a, as a gift um, 
to 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 to, to, to honor, to respect, to 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 um, to follow in their example, they view them as an idol to worship. You know, and, and unfortunately, you see a lot of churches like this. They're built on the personality of one individual or maybe a couple. I only go to this church because this leader is there. And they view that person as almost near perfect. Oh, they, their messages are amazing. They do everything almost near perfect. Messages. Every time they do a Bible study, it's just gold. I, they, they, they think everything that they do as a leader is almost perfect. And, and the way they, they carry themselves, oh, it's just, it's just amazing. But the problem is, if you idolize someone, you end up demonizing another. So if you idolize one leader, oh, they are just perfect. Here's another leader who's different than that leader. Boo, hiss. You're not like this leader. This is how every leader should be. <gasps> Amazing. But you don't fit that mold. Out. Ugh. And I, I bring this up too because especially when churches are in a transition from one pastor into a new pastor, sometimes that can cause a lot of problems because that new pastor isn't like my old pastor. If you idolize your previous pastor, then you're going to demonize this next pastor that comes in. And guess what? This next pastor that comes in isn't going to be Pastor Brian, isn't going to be Pastor Jack. It's going to be another pastor. This next pastor is going to be brought to us, is literally going to be given to this church as a gift. So receive him as a gift. Celebrate him. Don't idolize him. Celebrate him. Realize they're a gift. The third thing that Paul brings up is that these, these gifts, these leaders equip the saints for the work of service. Look at verse uh, 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Sometimes that word there means, it gets translated uh, ministry. To the building up of the body of Christ. Now the word equip is, a, is an interesting uh, Greek word only used in the New Testament. Not used in the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament. And outside the Greek, uh, the, the, the New Testament. But it could mean to mend a net you know, to prepare it to, to go fishing, to catch some fish. It could also be used to describe a ship ready to set sail. And get this, it could also be used as a chicken ready to go to market. The idea is to bring to a condition of fitness so that these gifts, these leaders, their responsibility, their purpose is to bring to a condition of fitness, the saints. Bring the saints to the fit, uh, uh, condition of fitness, of completeness. Why? For the work of service. To building up. Some translations will say edifying. Of, to the edification of the body of Christ. The work of the ministry of the church does not rest on the shoulders of a few. Many, uh, back in the, 
trying to remember, mid-1800s, um, there was a, a Italian economist by the name of Vilfredo Pareto. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Maybe you got a Vilfredo Pareto. You know, maybe that's how you do it. I don't know. But uh, he came up with um, what he called the 80-20 rule. Later, it got picked up uh, by another college uh, I forget, professor, and he turned it into, coined it, uh, the Pareto Principle. And uh, basically, uh, as Pareto was uh, studying agriculture, he realized that 80% of the the farm land in his area, the place that he was studying, was owned by 20% of the population. And he concluded that 20% of the population did 80% of the work in providing the produce to the rest of the community. Now, some of you have already heard this kind of nodding your heads. Yeah, the 80-20 rule. It's been attached to businesses. It's been part of a business, business model. And it's also trickled down into the church. Look at uh, Matthew uh, chapter 9. Jesus says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful. Like, oh, it's, it's right there. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. But the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. But unfortunately, for many churches, the burden of the work of the ministry is only placed on the shoulders of 20%. 80% of the work is placed on the 20%. And the majority is that of the leaders and maybe even volunteer leaders. And the, the idea behind that is, well, you know, give it to the professionals. I mean, they signed up for this role. I didn't sign up for it. Give it to them. Let them do all the teaching. Let them do all the Bible study. Let them go visit all the sick. Let them uh, put on all, you know, organize and put on all the events. And let them, uh, you know, evangelize. Let them do everything. Because they're the professionals. I would just mess it up. But that's the difference between a consumer mentality versus a Christian mentality. Consumer mentality views the church as a buffet. What can I come in? What do you have to offer me? Okay, so here the the leaders present you of this nice little spread. Okay, and you take, and then afterwards you criticize. I like this. I didn't like this. They really should do this, and blah, 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 blah. A Christian mentality is not... What can you give me, but what can I give? How can I help? How can I serve? How can I, how can I f- fill the gap? How can I help build the church? Healthy churches are equipped by their, their gifts, their leaders, to do the work of the ministry. Not to just lay all the ministry on their shoulders, but to do the work of the ministry. That's the mark of a healthy church. Finally, the third mark of a healthy church is that healthy churches grow in maturity. We see this in verses 13 through 16. The first one, maturity involves Christ-likeness. Look at verse 13. So for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building of the body of Christ, verse 13, until we all attain, literally until we reach the destination, 
This is the goal. Until we reach our goal. What is the goal? To the unity of the faith. Our beliefs, the, 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 unity, the, the, the unity in the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, and of the knowledge, this Greek word epigenosis, this full, experiential, personal knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. The word mature, teleos, is the, mean, the idea of being full grown, fully developed, fully accomplished. To the measure of the stature. The word stature literally means behavior befitting of someone who is mature. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, a mature church, or I should say maturing church, looks like Christ and behaves like Christ. That's easy, right? Nothing crazy there. Very simple. First thing is Christ-likeness. Number two, maturity involves stability. Look at verse 14. As a result, literally, so that you are mature, so that we are no longer to be children. The word he uses for children uh, literally means one who can't speak, like a newborn baby. Newborn baby cannot speak. They're, they're, they're infants, they're, they're children. Now, um, babies are cute, but spiritual babies are not. <laughs> babies are cute. Yay, who wants old baby? I like old babies unless they're, you know, spitting out of both ends, you know, kind of thing. But a spiritual baby, a spiritual infant is not cute whatsoever. Uh, in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 3, Paul's writing to a church who he's worked with, and, and unfortunately, that church has kind of gone off track. And most of 1 Corinthians is, is a correction and rebuke. And, and this is what he says, And I, brothers, was not able to speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to fleshy men. As to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you are still not. In uh, Hebrews chapter 5, the author says, For though by this time you, his audience that he's writing to, you ought to be teachers. Well, that's not my spiritual gift. Who cares? No, wrong. You all ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You're still in elementary school. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word or righteousness. For he is an infant. Now, as a child, you miss out on a lot of things. You remember, put yourself, when you were like two years old, three years old, you missed out on a lot of things. Mommy, can I do that? No, no, not until you get older. Have you ever gone to a really fun amusement park and you're, oh, this, this ride's going to be amazing. I know I'm going to have fun. But it has that little sign right before the, the entrance. You must be this tall to ride. And you stand up there and you're just like, but you're, nope, sorry, kid, you can't, you can't come on. You miss out. 
In the same way, for those who are spiritually immature, you miss out on God using you, working in you and through you, and God growing you. And experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit working through your lives. You miss out. It's also a dangerous place to be. Look look what it says. As a result, we are no longer uh, to be children, infants, tossed here and there by waves. Ever been in a storm? It's like I'm seasick. It's just you're tossed to and fro. It's unsettled. There's no stability. And carried about, literally swung around by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men. The word there for trickery uh, literally means playing the dice. It's like the idea of sleight of hand. Trickery of men by craftiness in deceitful scheming. The word for scheming is uh, methodia. It's where we get the word method. Their method, their whole scheme is deceit, is to make you wander away from the truth. When you are mature in Christ, you have a, a firm foundation. You know what is the truth because you're studying the truth. You're not perfect, but you're solid. Someone comes in and they start teaching something. You go, wait a minute, that's wrong. But if you're a spiritual baby, well, I guess that sounds right. I recently had a conversation with an individual, really intelligent, really intelligent. He was on the phone well, over an hour and just talking with him. And, and I was like, okay, he, he knew a lot of the Bible, but in a lot of really significant big areas, he was way out to lunch. And I kept on pointing back to him, no, 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 you're, you're missing it. This, this is what the Bible says, this is what the Bible says. And oh, no, 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 oh, no. And when it came down to it, he, he was just, he was a baby. He was ignorant. I mean, most likely was not a follower of Christ. Sure, he wasn't because he didn't believe Jesus was God. He believed Jesus was just a guy who, you know, uh, had the breath of God in him. And anyways, I'm not going to go into that. But it was bizarre. You know, and, and, and I've, I've encountered other, other individuals who've just been swept up in all this different teachings and all. It's like, why? Why are you doing that? And you talk to them, you find out that they don't know their Bibles. They're not growing. They're not maturing. So they, they don't have the stability. So they're, oh, this sounds great. And, you know, oh, this sounds great. And, oh, this sounds great. And behind every false teacher is a deceptive spirit trying to, to trip you up. But maturity involves stability. It's, it's important to not be uh, spiritually immature. Um, the third, maturity involves truthing in love. We'll get to what that means. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love we are to grow up or to increase, to enlarge in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Now the word uh, speaking the truth is an interesting Greek uh, word that is hard to nail down in English. And the best equivalent is truthing. We are to be truthing. Literally, we are to be confessing the truth in both word and 
deed. This doesn't just include your voice. It includes your actions. It's, you know, it's one thing to say, I can say the truth, but am I living the truth? You know, I, if I'm saying the truth and I'm living the truth, that's an un, unhypocritical life in truth. And we are to be continually truthing in love. We are to do it in love. The Greek word agape is the same love that Christ shared, uh, displayed to us on, when he died on the cross. So they think, okay, well, what is love? Perfect passage. Love, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Is not jealous. Does not brag. Is not puffed up. Does not act unbecomingly. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice uh, in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We are to be truthing. You know, God has given us truth. We can't ignore the truth, but we're to do it in love. The Bible says we are to spur one another on towards righteousness. Now, when you approach someone with the truth, are you more focused with trying to win an argument or the heart? Big difference. When you approach someone with truth, do you approach them where they're at? Spiritually or where you think they should be? Now, again, this doesn't only uh, refer to correction. You're just speaking the truth. But look what Proverbs 25 says. Like apples of gold in settings of silver. Oh, so pretty. Is a word spoken at the right time. Don't ignore the truth. The truth is there. You've got to speak the truth. Sometimes you've got to correct. Sometimes you've got to rebuke. How are you going to do it? How do you know when? How do you know how to, to approach, approach someone with truth? Get to know them. Get to know them. Not just on a first name basis, not just on a superficial level, really get to know them. I mean, I'm a father, I have kids. I have six kids, okay? And not, you know, every single one of them is different. Different temperament, different way of thinking, different way of understanding things. I have a different way of understanding and thinking as well. Do I approach them the same way I would want someone to approach me? No, that's not going to be helpful. Each of my kids, I still have to give them the truth. I'm obligated to give them the truth. But how do I do it? I get to know each kid. Not superficial level, who they are. Where are they at, spiritually speaking? And I come down to their level. Hey, let's talk. And then with this other kid, okay, I'm going to try this other way because where this method worked with this kid, this method now works, this other method will work with this kid. We are to be truthing in love. Get to know each other. Again, we are called to spur one another on towards righteousness. If you don't know someone, you're not going to know how to 
minister to them, how to speak truth to them. So get to know. We're a family. Embrace that. Um, but lastly, Paul brings up maturity involves uh, proper function. Verse 16. So, but speaking the truth in love, verse 15, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Verse 16. From whom or out of whom the whole body being fitted, literally joined, closely joined together and held together or knitted together by what every joint, every ligament, every bond supplies, every joint that gives support, gives, uh, contributes according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. As a church, we are united in Christ, but we're not uniform. We all have a part to play. And that's why Paul uses uh, again and again the idea of, of the, the language of a body. We are a body. We are Christ's body. Christ is the head. We are the body. And just like the body is made up of different parts, we all are not the same. You know, you got hands, fingers, toes, eyes, muscles, ligaments, skeletal system, nervous system, a brain. You know, not brain because Christ is the head. Heart. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are an important part of Christ's body. You are needed. The problem is, is a, you know, some Christians will struggle with, you know, where, where do I fit in? What, what part of the body am I? You know, and, and, and you may even have... Uh, maybe you've taken those like spiritual gifts, spiritual gift... Spiritual gift assessment tests. I had a hard time pronouncing that. Spiritual gift. And it's like, oh, okay, what's my spiritual gift? For, for the record, that's not what Paul's focusing in on here in this passage. The word for spiritual gift is charisma. It's literally a grace gift. The word that Paul's using here is dorea. It's just gift. The emphasis is not on the spiritual gift. And that's a whole other topic for another time. Different thing. Okay. The idea is you are part of the body. And so the question is, um, what are you to do? What am I to do? There's some good questions to think about. What is the need? What am I to do? What is the need? What is the need? Where, 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 where can I help? Where is the pain? Where's the pain? So I can come in and comfort and weep with and encourage. Where is the young student who can come in and teach them, spur them on towards righteousness to maturity? What is the hole that you can fill? Every church is not perfect. There's always holes. Where, 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 can, you, where can I fit in? Which hole can I, can I stand in? Where, where, how can I stand in the gap? We talked about this last week. In order for the body to move, just to do simple tasks from you coming in and sitting down. So much is involved, right? Your skeletal muscles, neurological system, muscles, everything has to work just so you could just rip, sit down. 
even sitting there, your lungs have to expand, your heart has to pump. I mean, you're not even doing anything. You're maybe sleeping, you know? Mike. <laughs> Never mind. Shouldn't say it. Scratch that from the record. No one sleeps here. We're all engaged. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. Um, where was I? Yes. Even just sitting there not doing anything, your body is constantly moving. And so the church, when it's, when it's working properly, uh, it, it, it moves. When the church, when, when individuals are, are helping out, are, are filling in the gap, finding where the needs are, the church, the, the, the church functions proper, properly. So, first mark of a healthy church. Churches walk worthy in unity. Second, healthy churches are equipped. Third, healthy churches grow in maturity. In closing, where is Jesus? He is risen. He is exalted. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. What is Jesus doing? He is building his church. He is loving his church. He is serving his church. He is devoted to his church. He is concerned for his church. You are an important part of that church. As one pastor put it, you may be involved in a school, but your school will not be there in a couple thousand years. You may have a job, but your company will probably not exist in a couple thousand years. You may love this nation, but in a couple thousand years, it will be nothing more than a footnote in history. But... In a couple thousand years, the church of Jesus Christ will still exist. Nations and kingdoms come and go, and the church continues to move forward. Through all the complexities, um, through all the cultural differences and oppositions and persecutions, the church keeps moving forward. What is the strongest organization of the earth? Uh, what is the strongest organization on this earth? The church. What is the longest lasting organization on this earth? The church. Now people scratch their heads and they wonder why. I mean, look at them. Are you serious? Bunch of, you know, incompatibles working together throughout the century. How does that even work? What is the secret? Oh, they have God with them. <laughs> there we go. That's the only way. Isn't it so great to be part of this magnificent thing called the church? Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, I want to thank you so much uh, for this word, this your word this morning. Um, help us, Lord, uh, to, to be the church you want us to be, to be a church that walks in, in worthy in unity, a church that is, uh, uh, rejoices in the gift of its leaders and is equipped to do the work of service. And uh, may we be a church that is continually growing in maturity into the likeness of Jesus. May we look like Jesus, behave like Jesus, not only among ourselves as brothers and sisters and as a family, but also to those outside who are perishing. May we truly be a light to this world, a city set on a hill. Again, Lord, we ask for help because we get, we get uh, distracted a lot of times. We get uh, focused on a lot of things. 
Some of it's good things, some of it's not good things, some of it has uh, no eternal value at all. May you give us wisdom so that we may be the people that you've called us to be. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's go ahead and stand.